Ash Maltz here again for another episode of the Archives Guy podcast. It's now October of probably the craziest year any of us can remember. I wanted to once again thank everyone for downloading, listening, and following the podcast. Three episodes in it and we're at almost 600 downloads. I'm having so much fun sharing my passion with all of you and I'm glad that you're enjoying it as much as I do bringing it to you. It's a great feeling to have your work appreciated, especially when it's something you truly love. I feel like this is something I was meant to do. So far, we've covered early Indigenous history in the Cambridge area, as well as the founding of Galt. Normally, I would move on to Preston, Blair, and Hespler, but we're going to take a, a detour for a couple of weeks and move on to our first themed episode. Now, I've wanted to do themed episodes for a while now, uh, just because uh, it seems like a lot of people really enjoy uh, different kind of uh, fun little episodes, so... Um, today we're going to start with our first themed episode, and with it being October, it's going to be a Halloween themed episode. Every town has their crazy stories involving ghosts and unexplained mysteries. Cambridge is no different. We have so many old buildings in town, there's no shortage of haunted house stories, and we've had our fair share of true crime tales. On this episode of the Archives Guy podcast, we're going to dive into some of the more famous, or should I say infamous, and strange tales. This is just a few of the stories I've come across in my time. Maybe I'll do a sequel episode with more stories next Halloween. We'll start with ghost stories, as they seem to be the most popular. And in the history of Cambridge, there's no ghost story more popular or well-known than the Old Post Office and Emily. The Old Post Office on Water Street was built between 1885 and 1887 and designed by Chief Dominion Architect Thomas Fuller. Fuller also designed many other post offices and the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. This building is built of local granite and limestone and served as the post office and customs office for Galt until 1936, when the new post office, or new old post office, was built at the corner of Water and Dixon Streets. At that point, the customs office took over the ground floor of the Water Street location and remained until 1963, when it moved into additional space at the Dixon Street Post Office. The same year, the city of uh, Cambridge, or should I say Galt, uh, bought it, uh, the old post office on Water Street for $12,000 with the intent of demolishing it for parking spaces. Instead of demolition, the city's engineering department moved in and stayed there until 1979, when it was sold for $87,000. Some of the staff would actually even live in the third floor of the building at the time. The building is believed to have built on the same site as the small frame one that was built when Shades Mills became Galt. In the last episode, we discussed how getting a post office built was the catalyst for Shades Mills being renamed Galt. Absalon Shade, as we uh, noted, uh, would serve as the first postmaster. The, fir the former Galt Post Office served an important function as the home of the Post Office, Customs, and other government service on the first and second floors with a caretaker apartment on the third. Depending on who you ask about this ghost story, it involves either the death of the postmaster or that of his mistress, Emily. William Turnbull uh, served as postmaster from 1898 until 1919. Legend has it, William and his wife lived on the third floor of the post office. William was allegedly involved in a torrid love affair with a former, uh, sorry, a post uh, employee named Emily. According to this legend, 
Um, perhaps because their uh, relationship was forced to be kept a secret or Emily was pregnant or because Mr. Turnbull attempted to end the affair, Emily became agitated and restless. She threatened to go public with their romance, which would have ultimately not only ruined the reputation of William, his marriage, and bring his career to an abrupt end, but also cause a great scandal for the local town's uh, folk to gossip about. Although some say it was suicide, others say murder. Emily's lifeless body was found dangling from the rafters in the clock tower only a few days later. Suicide or murder, no one knew, and William was supposedly found a few, uh, dead a few days later from what was speculated to be a broken heart. A Cambridge Reporter article noted, noted that strange noises could be heard in the clock tower over the years. The winding of the clock was the job of the postmaster. One version of the story claims that Mr. Turnbull haunts the building, or the more tragic version uh, portrayed is that uh, his mistress Emily haunts the tower. At one point, the post office was home to uh, the Time Club, and they called uh, the area, and that area called was called Emily's Attic. When it was the Time Clock, uh, Time Club, the manager would hear the sound of the clock being wound. In order to do that, a heavy lever had to be lifted, and no one else was ever in the building. He even found the lever moved at one point. Later, at Fiddler's Green, bottles levita levitating and smashing on the floor. Uh, locked doors opening on their own, motion sensors going off when no one was there, and alarm systems not working. Third floor windows that were screwed shut because they kept opening were found open with the screws lying on the windowsill. Crazy stuff like this happening. Um, mysterious shadows in the upper windows. Reports of lights turning on and a ghostly apparition of a girl in a green dress. A DJ had that, uh, that a woman uh, uh, appeared to him. He had turned uh, all his equipment off for the night, and suddenly the disco lights turned back on again, and as he turned around, he said there was a really familiar-looking girl in a green dress. As he spoke to her, the girl vanished and then reappeared in two or three more places. The DJ left and told the staff not to bother calling him again, as he would not be coming uh, back, and quickly left the post office. I have to give credit to my friend Jolene Taylor for helping me research this story. Jolene has probably done more research on the old post office than anybody ever. Um, Jolene works at McDougal Cottage in Galt, uh, which is a uh, old Scottish cottage that is uh, run now as a museum by the region of Waterloo. In Jolene, uh, in the cottage, they've done annual historical ghost walks that tell this uh, ghost story and other scary stories about different uh, locations across the uh, core of Galt. Jolene's currently on maternity leave, but the cottage is running some um, ghost walks uh, this year on October 22nd, 24th, and 28th from 6.30 until 8 in the evening. I highly recommend ch uh, checking these out as there are some really cool stories that most people are unaware of. Um, I'm not sure if they're sold out or not, but uh, feel free to check in and see. And If not, um, there's always next year. So some random thoughts um, now when it comes to the supernatural. Now, Cambridge has numerous historical buildings, as we said, and I'm sure there's a ghost story for every single one. Take the Preston Springs Hotel. It's widely considered to be one of the most haunted places in town. Now, that just good could be because it's an old historic building that's abandoned and it's cold and creepy inside. Um, sadly, I haven't been able to find anything even remotely convincing that tells me that it's haunted. 
Um, now, there's also a story um, I, I read uh, about Langdon Hall, and actually they have it on their website if you're interested in uh, reading a little bit more about it, and how it could be haunted um, by uh, Marguerite uh, Briquette Wilkes. Probably didn't pronounce that right, but sorry. The wife of the original owner of um, Langdon Hall. Langdon Hall's website notes how a, a psychic who stayed at the hotel while uh, a movie was being filmed, she noted that she had a discussion with a woman in her guest room one night. The woman told the psychic that she could not understand why there were so many people in her house. Now, the psychic had no knowledge of the history of Langdon Hall, and when she discussed this um, uh, with the daughter of Marguerite, it was a perfect description of her dead mother and that uh, she had been, in fact, staying in what was at one uh, point her mother's old room. People always ask me, like, uh, if I've ever seen anything spooky or whatnot in Historic City Hall over the years. I gotta disappoint you, as uh, I myself have never seen anything. That doesn't mean that it's not haunted. Um, there have been a few requests by paranormal investigators over the years uh, to take readings of the building. Um, there's this old creepy wheelchair that I like to tell people about in the basement that would scare anyone. It's an old wicker uh, wheelchair. Um... I can also say that being down there alone is a creepy experience. Um, have you ever seen the original Ghostbusters movie when they go to the library and they see the ghostly librarian? Well, that's how I felt the first time I went down there by myself. Another short story I'd like to share with you uh, for the Halloween episode is one from when I was a kid growing up in Preston. My parents' house is in the Dolphin Duke Street area of Preston. At the corner of these streets today, there are townhouses stretched over to uh, Laurel Street. When I was a kid, however, there was this old scary house that my dad took my brother and I inside once, and it was one of the most spooky experiences I've ever had. Now keep in mind, I was probably about 10 years old at the time. but The old building was abandoned and had these creaky wooden stairs. It didn't help that when uh, constructions of the townhouses began, um, they actually uh, begun dug digging up the land around the house and they uh, found all these numerous uh, human remains. Being naive kids growing up in the 80s, we thought that they had discovered an old Indian burial ground and that this house we went inside was haunted. Turns out it was uh, the location of the area's first Catholic church that predated um, St. Clement's. And this was the church's cemetery. The remains would eventually be, uh, be moved to St. Clement's uh, Cemetery on Speedsville Road. It took me years to learn more about this area, and it, it's actually a, literally a block from where I grew up. Uh, ghost story number two, GCI. The next go uh, ghost story I'd like to share about is another of the more famous stories, and that is GCI. Galt Collegiate Institute is one of the oldest continuing operating schools in Ontario and the most well-known high school in Cambridge. It began as the Galt Grammar School in 1852, operating out of the town hall at the time before construction on its current location on Water Street. Seven, several students uh, um, who attended GCI actually fought in the First World War, including George Fraser Kerr, who won the Victoria Cross for bravery. Gordy Howe even attended for a short time before he became a hockey legend. It's also been called one of the most haunted locations in Cambridge, their sports teams are even called the Ghosts. In a newspaper article from the Waterloo Re Region Record from 2002, reporter Jeff Hicks discusses the different theories over who haunts the building and why. A couple of theories exist. 
The first is probably the most famous and involves the former principal and founder of what became GCI, William Tassie. Tassie was the headmaster from 1852 until 1881. During that time, he was known as a strict disciplinarian as well as very old school in his teaching methods. He mostly focused on the classical method rather than the newer teaching methods that were taking hold at the time. It was that, and along with the issue of allowing girls to study at the school with the boys, that pushed uh, Tassie to resign as headmaster. The story goes that Tassie was a noted pipe smoker, and over the years, caretakers, students, teachers, among others, have noticed the smell of pipe smoke in the school late at night. Maybe the old headmaster still walks the halls over a hundred years after his death, unable to rest at the thought of the newer teaching methods and, God forbid, girls attending his school. The article goes on to mention stories of caretakers late at night hearing doors open while the doorknobs were still locked, or hearing strange noises in the halls, especially on the fourth floor. The other theory who haunts the uh, school is that of former caretaker David McGeorge. Sadly, there's no tragic reason for this theory or other than Tassie, or the other, sorry, with Tassie. It's just speculation. It's one of those stories that's passed down from class to class, year after year, generation to generation. Now, the next half of the episode, we're going to delve into uh, what we call true crime. In this age of streaming and Netflix having a new crime series on every week, it seems, I thought I'd tackle some true crime stories in the area. Cambridge has also had its fair share of horrific crimes. I'm going to touch on a couple of the more infamous examples. These are sad and true tales, so we need to remember that these deal with real people from our area, so we need to respect those involved. The first I'd like to talk about uh, is one that is fascinated since I first read about it a few years ago, as it happened close to where I live right now in Preston. The Schlegel Murder-Suicide. Preston in the 1940s was a small town like any other in southern Ontario. It had long since shed its Mennonite roots and become a prosperous and industrious little town. That would change on February the 4th, 1940. A quiet quiet neighborhood not far from where I live today was shattered by the tragic murder-suicide involving the Schlegel family. Alvin Schlegel was known as a a well-known member of the community. He was heavily involved with sports, serving as the Ontario Hockey Association president in the late 1930s, as well as a member of the Preston Rotary Club and the Masons. In business, he was also quite successful at the Canadian Office and School Furniture Company, and later the Preston Furniture Company and Canadian Sandpapers Limited. The evening of Sunday, September 4th, was like many others across Canada, family uh, Sunday dinners. The Schlegels had a a family dinner with Alvin, his wife Marie, son Jack, daughter Marguerite, and son-in-law Bruce McCullough. After a typical Sunday dinner, Marguerite and Bruce, who had been married less than a year, left to go to the evening church services at St. Peter's Lutheran Church. While the young couple attended the uh, church services, Alvin left to, uh, to the nearby offices of Canadian Office and School Furniture and was thought to have retrieved a revolver and 10 shells and returned almost immediately. He would leave his car parked on the street, whereas he normally parked it in the garage. He left the family bulldog in the car as well. He then smoked a cigar. It was then that Mr. Schlegel began the massacre that would shock the town. He shot his wife to death on the couch and proceeded to move upstairs and shot his son Jack, 
The first uh, shot did not kill the young boy, so Alvum shot him again in the head, killing him. It was believed that he then re um, reloaded his revolver and waited for his daughter and son-in-law to return home from church. As Marguerite and her husband returned home, Alvin was waiting for them and shot his daughter point-blank in the chest as she entered the house. He would shoot her again in the head. Bruce McCullough would escape the horror by leaping over the house's veranda and ran to the local police station in terror. He told police that his daughter had yelled to her father, Don't do that, Daddy. It hurts. Schlegel would reply, I'm doing it because I love you, darling. Mr. McCullough brought the police back to, uh, to the home, and when they arrived, the massacre was over. Alvin Schlegel had murdered his wife, son, and daughter, and he had then committed suicide after Bruce had escaped by shooting himself in the head. Officers described the scene as terrible and unlike anything they'd ever seen. After a short investigation, it was deemed that Alvin Schlegel had been suffering from some sort of mental illness when he committed these horrific crimes, a condition he was being, treat being treated for at the time. It was a crime that shocked, shocked the community, and the funerals for the family were attended by many. It still shocks people 80 years later on that something so tragic and horrifying can happen in our little town. The next uh, case we're going to look at is the Raymond murder of 1958. This is murder. This was the declaration of Inspector Jack Craig quoted in the local newspaper of June of 1958. He was referring to our next case, which we will discuss, and that is the murder of Helen Raymond. Mrs. Raymond was a widow who worked at the general store she and her husband had operated for over 20 years at Raymond's Corner. Now, Raymond's Corner, after doing a little research and asking for a little help from the public, turns out that Raymond's Corner is roughly in the vicinity of Pinebush Road and Franklin Boulevard, the roundabout, close to where the, uh, I believe the Shell gas station is today. The victim was killed in the early hours of the morning and was not found um, until much later in the morning. Sadly, local citizens arrived at the scene before the police and began wild specu wildly speculating that Mrs. Raymond was the victim of a sexual psychopath because she was found with her clothing disarranged. She had been bludgeoned to death with a solid object. Once the police arrived and began their investigation, this was quickly ruled out. Um... Other motives ruled out included robbery, vengeance, and romance. The inspector said that he believed jealousy to be the motive, the hoary green-eyed monster for many crimes of violence over the ages, as the newspaper put it. This was put out there before the police even had a suspect. They claimed to be following multiple leads. There were theories that Mrs. Raymond had picked up a hitchhiker after visiting her sister in Hespler the night she had been shot. These leads would, would eventually lead them to a nearby farm operated by Frank Martin, an employee of Sheldon's Engineering and Galt. The police interviewed him for more than two hours. Martin even gave a detailed interview at the time with police and to the local media right after. He spoke how police had taken three of his axes and other items. A few weeks later, police would arrest Frank Martin for the murder of Helen Raymond. In a stunning turn of events... Martin was released a month after being arrested. The judge declared that the Crown had not sufficiently shown that Martin had committed the murder, only that he could have maybe killed Mrs. Raymond. Circumstantial evidence, he claimed. 
Going back to the jealousy motive, he noted that the victim had been um, had been keeping the company of a man she had met in Florida. You see, Mrs. Raymond's husband had died a few years earlier. It was claimed that someone had been tampering with the car of this Florida man, and maybe it was Mr. Martin or some other jealous suitor. There is no solid proof linking Martin to these acts. Frank Martin would again give an interview to the media after being freed. Things get weirder when in October of that year, Martin contacted the police and asked for a meeting. After this meeting, he was rearrested and charged again with murder. He had even submitted a signed confession. He claimed to have disposed of the murder weapon, which he described in detail, and he disposed of it at his work. The police didn't believe him. They thought he had disposed of it in one of the ponds located around his farm, close to the murder's location. After a short trial, he was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity. His wife told reporters her husband was a very sick man. From what I can tell, he had a history of mental illness, and it seems that he killed Mrs. Raymond during a period of intense mental illness. This is a really strange case, and I haven't been able to find out what happened to Mr. Martin. Did he end up in a mental institution? Prison? Did he ever get released? If you know the answer, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at archivesguypodcast at gmail.com. The next case we're going to discuss is the Laszlovich death in Preston in 1931. Continuing on the weird stories involving strange and unexplained deaths, the last story I'd like to tell you about involves the death of Michael Vasilovich, a man of Polish descent who died in Preston in 1931 under bizarre circumstances. I came across this story earlier this year, and it has to be one of the most bizarre I've ever come across. Vasilovich was found dead in his bed with his house burning in the early hours of July 26, 1931. The man was found at about 5.30 a.m. and had been dead for hours at that point. To make things even more strange, he was found with a fractured skull um, that doctors later determined was a fatal injury, but that he could he could have been alive uh, when the home began to burn. Did someone place him in his bed, set the house on fire to cover up their crime? Well, at first, no. There was no thought that, that it was foul play. Um, an inquest was um, held to look into the case to dig a little bit deeper. After further researching the case, the inquest declared that the man had been murdered. Uh, the Galt Reporter newspaper later noted that the skull injury combined with the smoke from the fire would have been enough to kill him. It was later found that Voslovich had attended a party nearby and had consumed a considerable amount of alcohol. Maybe he walked home drunk, fractured his own skull by accident, and then accidentally set his house on fire. A smoked cigarette had been found in the vicinity of the bed. The Preston fire chief, A. Spaulding, objected to this theory. To me, it doesn't really give an explanation as to how he fractured his skull. Uh, the coroner was adamant that he couldn't have fractured his skull that badly by himself, even if he was drunk. I continue to research this case, and the newspaper like eventually just stops covering it. Um, everywhere else I've uh, researched states that it was an accident. Accident. The story kind of fizzled fizzled out as a true crime story, but it's still sad that it involves the tragic death of a man. Um, one thing we need to remember, and I mentioned this earlier, is that with these cases that, and those that some of the ones you watch on Netflix, they they're more than um, 
just like like crazy stories and all that to entertain people um the real people that that are involved the real people that have died um i'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of the schlegels helen raymond and michael Vaslovich. so there are just some of the many scary strange stories that have occurred in cambridge Eventually, I want to cover more of these stories, uh, possibly even before next Halloween. I find most people enjoy these type of stories, so I'd like to explore them a little more. If you have any story of, uh, of your, yourself that you're aware of that you would like me to look into more, or if you have information about a story, I sound like Unsolved Mysteries here, but uh, feel free to contact me at archivesguypodcast at gmail.com. So this week, instead of a book recommendation, I'm going to give a, another shout out to my friend Jolene Taylor at McDougal Cottage um, and uh, the research that she's done. Um, so McDougal Cottage is an old home in Galt that dates back to about the 1850s. It housed two different families of hardworking Scots, the McDougals and the Bairds. It now hosts, uh, houses a museum operated by the regional Waterloo. It's an amazing example of Scottish traditions, and they host events related to those and other topics. They recently uncovered old murals under the wallpaper of the house painted many years ago. And like I said earlier, my favorite thing they do is the yearly ghost walks. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of availability left for this year, but definitely check them out in the future. And just in general, check out McDougal Cottage if you get the chance. I've gone in the past, and I've really enjoyed my experience uh, in learning about the, the cottage. If you enjoyed this and uh, want to learn a little bit more about uh, Cambridge history, give the podcast a follow. Um, if you missed an episode, you can check it out on a few locations to get caught up. Right now, it's on Podbean, Spotify, and finally, I can say it's on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the Archives Guy podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you enjoyed the first themed episode of the Archives Guy podcast. I'm looking to do another one uh, shortly on military history um, in uh, conjunction with Remembrance Day. After that, we'll go back to take a dive into the histories of Preston, Blair, and Hesmer. As always, feel free to send me any uh, feedback to archivesguypodcast at gmail.com um, or as well any topic suggestions or questions. I'd like to eventually do a question and answer episode uh, to answer any of your questions about the history of Cambridge. I've also got a few interview slash panel uh, episodes, some really cool little uh, ideas in the works as well. So thanks for joining me on this episode and join me again soon as we continue to explore our story.